Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. When you think of funk, you think George Clinton. His shows with Parliament Funkadelic were raw, tripped out, and uh, spontaneous. I read that frequently in your shows, and at the very beginning of the 1970s, you would end up naked. Yeah, that was a period. <laughs> that, that was a period that, you know, the trendy chemical substance was always around. <laughs> and the worst thing that could possibly happen is, though, is the music stopped. And the lights come on. <laughs> then you feel like an idiot. And that happened at the Hink a couple of times. It's Bullseye. Coming up, my conversation with the living legend, the master of the funk, Dr. Funkenstein himself. George Clinton paid his dues in the mainstream, singing doo-wop and writing songs for Motown. Then... With Parliament Funkadelic, he developed a look and a sound that was like nothing else before. Like what Jimmy Hendrix was to rock and roll, we was like that to R&B and, and probably everything else. We was weird to everybody. And we'll talk about his trouble managing the business side of things. I've been trying for the longest, but you can't do that and smoke crack at the same time. It don't work. You know, and I was trying to do that. You can file that one under Real Talk. Then later, I'll talk with the comedian, actress, and showrunner, Cristela Alonso. She talks about her childhood in her stand-up act, how she grew up poor in South Texas. And I mean actually poor. Like her family squatted in an abandoned diner with electricity from an extension cord running from her neighbor's backyard. She says that for the longest time, she never even realized her life was different. And I called, I called my family, and I'm like, do we live in a diner? <laughs> and everybody started, like, my brothers and my sister are like, yeah, stupid. Like, you didn't, I'm like, I didn't know. I was a kid. I was a kid. You know, I had no idea. Finally, I'll tell you about a Saturday Night Live sketch that I connected with on a deep, profound, beautiful level. And since you're a Bullseye listener, I bet that you will, too. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're listening to some of our favorite interviews this week. This one's a doozy. From 2014, the great George Clinton. He says that funk is whatever it needs to be at the moment that it needs to be that. At the end of the 1960s, he took his doo-wop group, the Parliaments, added some LSD, some rock guitars, 10-ton bass lines, diapers, sometimes nudity, a spaceship, and he mixed them all up into the musical collective Parliament Funkadelic. The music was funk, as nasty as B.O., and built around a rhythmic pulse called The One. Here they are, live on stage in 1976. Yo-ho. Yo-ho. 
George Clinton. Roof, roof. Welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. I'm so happy. Yeah, it's good to hear that. I remember them days. Um, what was the first music that you played? Did you take piano lessons or no, sing with your I didn't family? Play. I didn't play nothing. Everybody wanted to be Frankie Lyman when I grew up. Everybody wanted to sing in a doo-wop group, and that's what I did. Did you think of yourself as a good singer? Hell no. <laughs> you know, back in the doo-wop days, maybe one or two people in the whole group would know how to harmonize, and the rest of you sung in unison until you learn. Now, you you learn after a while, but by the time we got to the 60, 1960, oh, yeah, we was, we was slick. I knew all about it then. I want to take a listen to the first song that you ever cut on record, at least as far as I know. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, this is the Parliaments, your original vocal group, with Poor Willie, and this is from 1958. That's it. That's it. <laughs> What part were you singing on that record? A uh, baritone. Baritone. By then, by then, we were just learning how to harmonize <laughs> on the different the, uh, four-part harmony. How old were you then? Uh, for Willie, about 17. Were you still in school? Just got out of school. Did you think when you cut that record, oh, great, this is going to be our ticket to stardom? Oh, yeah. You, you know, you were so close to it. Everybody around you was getting hit records. I mean, look, the the group that recorded a half an hour prior to us, um, the the elegance, the, the Elgins, they did um, the Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, so millions monotones. A couple of weeks before that, pastels and the heartbeats. Everybody around there was selling. We were probably one of the few that, that she had that didn't get off the ground at that moment. What was it like to be in that position? No, when you know you were close to it, it was just a matter of time, even though it took another almost 10 years. <laughs> Let's take a listen to my guest, George Clinton, and his group, the Parliaments, his original group, with their one big hit from 1967, I Want to Testify. Don't you know that I just Tell me a little bit about where that sound came from, because it's it's pretty different from that doo-wop sound of 10 years earlier. That's my uh, combination of Motown, which was happening at the moment, but at the same time, the Beatles, Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stone, it was, it was my version of the funky Motown songs and the, the British uh, rock and rolls. That you know that they had just started invading the states with. You were touring that record when the parliaments started to change into funkadelic. What were the what were the first changes? Like, what was the first time you know you went on stage without matching suits or something like that? 
you know, when that song came out, we was playing with a lot of um, of the um, the sixty bands that was almost psychedelic, you know, with the flower shirts and uh, beads and things. So it didn't take us long to realize that the suits was wasn't even necessary in the first place. Plus, we couldn't keep them clean. We wasn't making that much money, <laughs> and and the hip thing was to be funky anyway. Hippies was basically funky the way we were naturally because we didn't have no money. So it became hip to be funky bums. I think there's a really interesting contrast between this song that I want to play, I'll Bet You, which is one of the first Funkadelic records, um, and I want to testify the one big hit of the parliaments, in in that they, they have a lot in common. Um, but I'll bet you, which came out in 1970, just a couple years after I want to testify, is a, sort of on a whole other plane. Let's take a listen to it. That, that that song has a weird story. You know, Michael Jackson them did it later on. You know that, right? Yeah, the the Jackson Five recorded that. But it was also it was also one of the songs that changed the Temptations into that style of singing. What I think is interesting about the Funkadelic recording of it is that you have the, you know, you still sound like a vocal group when you're singing, but the band is so much more band-oriented. It's not just backup for the vocals. Well, that's what it was. It was Funkadelic. Funkadelic was the band. We were background singers. I read that frequently in your shows, and at the very beginning of the 1970s, you would end up naked. Yeah, that was a period. <laughs> that, that was a period that, you know... The trendy chemical substance was always around, <laughs> and everybody was tripping. Yeah, yeah, I've streaked around a few times. <laughs> and then the worst thing that could possibly happen is though is the music stop, and the lights come on, <laughs> and you feel like, then you feel like an idiot. And that 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 happened at the hink a couple of times. I, I was reading some account of the band auditioning for uh, Motown in Detroit. And somebody said, I can't remember who it was, but uh, one of one of the members of Funkadelic said, oh, George went and stripped off all his clothes, went and told Barry Gordy off in the middle of the show uh, because he had not signed the, uh, signed the band, you know, long before. And your defense was, maybe I took off my clothes and was running around on everyone's tables, and I was pouring wine on my head, so it maybe it seemed like I was peeing in everyone's drink. But I didn't tell him off specifically. But that, that, that part of it was true, but it wasn't about telling him off. It had nothing to do with 
our auditioning. He just happened to be at a show when we were running up and down the tables. And I used to pour wine over my head. And like I said, running down my body, it looked like it's dripping off my (laughs) (laughs) You know, no, I wouldn't do that. (laughs) Let's take a listen to some Funkadelic extending fully into the world of psychedelic rock with probably one of the great guitar songs of all time with Eddie Hazel on lead guitar, uh, Maggot Brain. play a, a tiny snippet of that <laughs> epic song because otherwise we wouldn't have any time left to talk um, there was there were people in the band that were using all kinds of drugs um, I mean you mentioned that in the early days basically everybody was dropping acid yep H- how did you manage a big band like that how did you when you're dropping acid how do you make sure everybody else shows up Oh, well, at that time, everybody had the same dream. I mean, everybody still was dreaming of being that rock star. You know, you see, we had dreams like the the Beatles and Motown and all that was. So we we never, like, missed gigs or nothing like that. The dream was bigger than any parties or anything else. When Funkadelic became Parliament Funkadelic, for real, in the mid-1970s, when, uh, when you added the huge... Parliament R&B hits to the big funkadelic, you know, rock jams. Um, What was it like to have this enormous thing that wasn't like anything else in the musical landscape? There's nothing else going on in 1975 that's like, oh, yeah, that's a lot like P-Funk. Well, I mean, when you say it's Parliament Funkadelic, but you also really have to say... Bootsy too, sure, because that it's still all of that became one big circus there. Then you know, there's nothing like that because we had budgets and we had success. The only thing that that scared all the record companies was that we were about to become what they thought another Motown. You when you say that when you say George that that people were worried that you were going to become another Motown, you mean. That that you were going to become a rival who was an outside rival, a, a threat to them, and particularly a, a, maybe a, a potentially a black owned threat. Uh, yeah, comp- yeah, black owned because the black companies had proved that you couldn't rely on them to get off the dance floor. When Motown was hot, they were hot. Philadelphia was hot, they were hot. Stax was hot, they were hot. I mean, it just. That's just the way it is when it comes to, like, shaking booty music. Can you describe to me what it was like to put together the Live Earth tour in, in the mid-1970s? Well, that was that was um, beautiful. I mean, we got the hit record first. Which was the hit that set it off? Tear the roof off. We want the funk. 
That record was a hit record. It became a big pop hit. I told Neil, get me a spaceship, and I would do what Pink Floyd was doing, or the Who, or the, you know, like a rock opera like the Beatles was doing with Sgt. Pepper, or even Hair. Describe what the describe what the show looked like before we take a listen to it. Well, you had a you had a big um, fifty foot spaceship across the stage. You had a big sixty foot hat denim hat spaceship was up in with eyeglasses from the car headlights on a big pair of sunglasses. Big props on both sides of the stage, a massive stage. Then you had the the bootsies set up with all those big cabinets, and um, a limousine, silver platinum limousine going across the stage, and about seventy five people on and off the stage, depending on which group it was. Well, let's take a listen. Uh, my guest is George Clinton. This is Parliament Funkadelic live in nineteen seventy six. Even more with George Clinton still to come after years of chaos and drug addiction. He's gone clean. He's getting his financial affairs in order. After a quick break, he'll tell me how he did it. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Destiny is calling. It says you need a new website. Easily create a website by yourself with the help of 24-7 award-winning customer support. Head to squarespace.com slash bullseye for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code bullseye to save 10% off your first purchase of website or domain. Keep dreaming. Make it a reality with a website from Squarespace. I'm Scott Tetro. There is so much political news to follow these days, but you don't have to keep up with all of it. You just have to keep up with us on the NPR Politics Podcast. You can find us on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Greatest Generation is the most popular Star Trek podcast in the world. A pretty dubious distinction, but it's true. We've blasted through all of Star Trek The Next Generation, and now we are blasting through Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Come find out why millions of people have listened to our show and the Star Trek industrial complex ignores it. Go to MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts and look for The Greatest Generation. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're playing some of our favorite interviews from the Bullseye archive. This time around, it's George Clinton from 2014. He started out singing doo-wop, but he later found himself writing songs for Motown, 
and finally wound up creating a wholly unique sound and visual experience with Parliament and Funkadelic. Here's Funkadelic's classic, Cosmic Slop. Almost all of the Parliament and Funkadelic records uh, after the first couple years were designed by a guy called Pedro Bell. Um, And he has an incredibly distinctive style that anyone who's ever seen a Funkadelic record recognizes. Mm -hmm. Can, Can you tell me about how you met him and how he became like the house artist of the funk? <laughs> Pedro used to write me letters up in Toronto when I lived in Toronto. And um, the Postmaster General came and asked me, was I in some kind of organization? He wanted to know what kind of organization I was in, make sure it wasn't some subversive organization. Cause <laughs> he used to draw on the letters the same way he do on the albums. Same kind of little cartoon. You know, pimps from outer space and maggots and worms. And he, it, it was just like it was perfect for Funkadelli. I thought it was kind of cute, so I asked him to do the album. And um, he did uh, Cosmic Slop. You know, and um, after that, he did all the Funkadelic albums. And he's legally blind. Why were you so committed to having this mythological world? around Parliament and Funkadelic in the middle of the 70s? Well, first of all, I feel like characters last longer than people do anyway. You know, like Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, they they never worry about getting old. So I think characters, you put the whole thing into a character perspective, it can go year in and year out. It's just getting new stories. So that's mainly where I was coming from, you know, like, I grew up in New Jersey when West Side Story, Hair, um, all of the you know, Broadway plays was jumping off. And rock started becoming, you know, being able to graduate into that. So I said R&B should be able to do it too. When you got Bootsy and Catfish and uh, so on to join your band, um I imagine that a big part of what was so great about it was how brilliant they were as musicians and are as musicians. Um, But was there also part of it uh, that was cool that you were uh, stealing James Brown's band? No, that that never, that never, you know. (laughs) Or I should say, I should say, given what I've heard about what it was like to be in James Brown band, maybe liberating James Brown. No, but you know what? They all would talk like that, but they all have so much to pay, you know, to that experience that they they end up saying how much they learned from being there. Do all the craziness they say James was about, they all would tell you that. If he said something about, here's a beat, here's a groove, you had to pay attention to it. 
It seems like at some point or other, almost everybody in the group uh, quit over money. Um, oh, yeah, that's when you get when you grow up and you get married, and it's no longer just you and your group. That becomes a reality. So a lot of people have to quit over money, and if it's anything like the majority of the situation, managers, lawyers, accountants, record companies, publishers. They all have a, a very educated way of manipulating that. Let me ask you this. When, in the mid-1970s, as funk became a sort of dominant sound with James Brown and the tail end of Sly Stone's career, um, what did you think of those guys who had been whose success had, had predated yours. Um, you even toured with Sly a, a little bit um, uh, in the late 70s, and you've recorded recently with him. He's still my favorite from all of that period. It's, chemistry has always been a thing with me. I like everybody that played with us. I try to stay close as much as I can to as many of them as I can. That's the one thing I think about Sly's group. That family was impeccable. What's Sly's health like? He's, he's still he's still being Sly, but he's he not you know he's not sick. I got sick and, and I had to straighten up, but I got sick and I didn't know, don't get sick that often. He's another one that it, it'll it'll hit him sooner or later, but he seemed to be all right right now. He had more problems like I was having with the legal stuff. And the wrestling with lawyers and managers, they got him in such a bind. He's just tied up in that, and he really needs some kind of intervention, you know, in in the, the whole legal concept. Both of us need that. I, I managed to get a team together and, and fight pretty hard at it, but he's like, he really needs that kind of help. Did you have a hard time keeping your business affairs together Um in the last, you know, tw- yes, I mean, I've just like actually gotten months of the last couple of years. I've been trying for the longest, but you can't do that and smoke crack at the same time. It don't work, you know. And I was trying to do that, but you have to stop just because you can't take care of that business, and they know you can. How did you do it? Well, I, the, the head starter, I get, I just got run down and. Frustrated, tired, and got run down, and got sick. Once I got sick, I just took. I know what I had to do. Once I got the rest, my whole thing was okay. I got to make a production out of this. I got to find a way to like not want to get high, and all I had to do was think about the music was being messed with. So right then, if I caught these people off guard by straightening up, I'll be able to go real fast before they realize that. I'm not getting high no more. I'll be able to do a lot of stuff. And that was my only thing I had to do. I didn't have to go no rehab or no nothing. Dope ain't that good. When you think back to your career, what period of time do you think the most of? I'm down with all, you know, I'm down with probably all of it. The fun was, you know, running around with the mothership, of course, but also running around in Detroit doing, from Testify to I Bet You doing the psychedelic era. That was fun as hell. The, the doo-wop days back in Jersey and Plainfield, 
was all different kinds of fun. The hip-hop days, of course, has been really fun because it always seemed like old school and we're supposed to be out of here, but we still have so much fun on the stage right now with the band that as long as it's still being fun to me, that's what I keep doing. Well, George, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. It was really great to get to talk to you. Okay, thanks, man. Take care. George Clinton from 2014. If you haven't checked out a record of his, um, I don't know where, I mean, Maggot Brain by Funkadelic is one if you really like guitars. Um, I'm a big fan of Mothership Connection by Parliament. My daughter's favorite song is on there. It's called Night of the Thumpasaurus Peoples. She likes it because I told her that it is about dinosaurs learning to dance. The latest Parliament record is called Medicaid Fraud Dog. This song is called I'm Gonna Make You Sick of Me. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up, Cristela Alonso. She's a veteran stand-up comic and actress. You might have seen her on her ABC sitcom, Cristela. She was the creator, the star, and she also wrote and produced it. Alonso was actually the first Latina ever to do all those things on one TV show. She was born in a small town in South Texas. Her mom was an immigrant whose visa expired. Cristela remembers having to hide her from the cops coming home every day wondering if her mom might have gotten picked up in the latest workplace raid. Cristela was also really, really poor growing up, and that's something she talks about a lot in her comedy. When we talked last year, it was just after she dropped her Netflix special, Lower Classy. It's a very funny ode to that time in her life. She talks about poverty, about immigration, depression, all with a warm smile and an infectious laugh. In fact, I don't think you could find a warmer or more infectious comedy performer than Cristela. In this clip from Lower Classy, she's talking about how she never really thought about poverty and stuff as a kid until it came to her favorite band, New Kids on the Block. Let's listen. When I was in fourth grade, I realized I was poor because I was a really big fan of New Kids on the Block. Loved them, right? I couldn't afford to see them in concert, right? So I had this fantasy when I was a kid, you know, that I was going to meet them and they were going to fall in love with me, right? No joke, you guys. This was the fantasy. Fourth grade. I was going to be the maid on their tour bus. And I was going to clean things so good that they were going to fall in love with me. Like, in my head, I thought they were going to get on the tour bus and they were going to be like, oh, my God, who made that bed right there? You know what I mean? (laughs) And then I would say, I made that bed. And they would be like, we love you now. And I'm like, ah! (laughs) That was it. That was in fourth grade. Christelle Alonso, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. That is... Maybe the single saddest stand-up comedy bit <laughs> I've ever watched anyone perform in my entire life, and I've seen a lot of stand-up comedy. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I feel like I told my wife the setup f- for that bit uh, last night, uh-huh. uh, 
and she nearly started crying (laughs) 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 from having had it related to her. Well, you know, yeah, I know, I know, but that's kind of... That's kind of like a. That's kind of like what makes stand up cool is when you can actually make jokes about something that's sad because everything can be funny if you have the right angle, perspective to it. You know, I, but yeah, I totally get it. Is this is this like um, uh, something that you discovered along the way that um, you could actually just write jokes about the literal saddest parts of your entire life? Yes, it was actually one of those things where uh, my my life overall has been pretty sad. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, knock knock, who's there? Depression. You know, it's like uh, so. It it for me, stand up was about. uh, It was autobiographical. I chose to be like that from the beginning because no one can take those jokes away from you. No one can ever steal those jokes away. They they can't – a guy can't really do that and really own it. And for me, I think that uh, – I started doing stand-up after my mom passed away because I couldn't afford therapy. And uh, I started stand-up really kind of talking about serious things from the get-go. So it kind of became my thing in a way because so many people started really connecting with what I was saying – and it kind of felt cathartic. Have you had the opportunity to have therapy since? I actually just started therapy again. This is how fun. Like, I started therapy. I went the first time in 2000, 2010. And I was really depressed. I didn't know what I was doing. And I just needed help. And my boyfriend at the time took me to therapy. And uh, the last session that I could afford the therapist told me, you know, you're suffering from a severe depression. We're going to talk about that next week. And I was like, well, this is a to-be-continued episode. <laughs> I'm like, no, we're not. And I, I, I stopped going because I couldn't afford it anymore. I couldn't afford I had no insurance. I was really broke. And I'm like, I, I'm not. <laughs> I'm just imagining instead of those, like, chimes that you hear that signify the hour is over, you know, that kind of boom. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. We're out of time. It was just bump, bump, bump. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly what it was. It seems like. And, you know, I'm I'm basing this on my experience with my own family members, that there, there is, I think, for some people, the feeling that, like, part of enduring the unendurable, that when we, like, go up against mm-hmm. the hugest problems in our life, like real poverty, mm-hmm. um, uh, your mother was a single mother mm-hmm. who uh, was an immigrant, first-generation mm-hmm. immigrant, and so on and so forth, that, like... Even acknowledging that they are problems mm. or asking for help is just going to be the, you know, the piece that falls out of the seawall and the ocean's just going to sure subsume sure. everything. Well, you know, I also grew up in a neighborhood where, uh, you know, the kids would make fun of you if you tried to better yourself. You know, like, hey, what are you doing reading? That's dumb. Like, why are you reading? You know, it's like, so it's like that thing where you kind of, in my neighborhood, it was always very, we were very used to just suffering and accepting that that's life, suffering. So it wasn't till I moved out from that neighborhood that I realized life was different. Like, people had things I didn't know existed, you know? I didn't know air conditioning was available in houses <laughs> till I was in high school 
no, maybe junior high, but maybe high school. I had to go do a school project at a friend's house. And I walked in and I'm like, why is your house so cold? Because I loved cold. We didn't have air conditioning. She's like, oh, is it too cold? I'll just, I'll lower the AC, which I had heard at school. Like, And I thought, I thought only businesses had them. <laughs> and then when I found that out, I'm like, oh, my God. And I remember going home and telling my mom, mom. There's air conditioning for homes. <laughs> and my mom's like, yeah, stupid. We can't afford it. Like, of course. And I'm like, why didn't no one tell me that? You know, it's that kind of stuff. My wife uh, and I have been together since high school. And like one of the first things I found out about her was that until until high school, um, she believed based on the cooking of her uh, father, who was quite young when she was born, um, that a burrito was a tortilla with refried beans and slices of cucumber. <gasps> You've never heard of that before. <laughs> she just thought that was what a burrito was. Oh, my God. Um, tell me about the town that you grew up in, because I, I have never been to South Texas, and I don't know what it's like. I grew up in a, a little town called San Juan, Texas, which I always tell people that I grew up in McAllen, because that's the big town. And even then, people are like, what? Uh, it's a border town, and growing up, we used to go to Mexico every Monday to visit my grandmother. And uh, people don't understand, in the border town... This is what's interesting is that culturally we talk about immigration and we talk about like, you know, the, the people are coming here and taking away our jobs and everything. Actually, where I lived, it, we kind of coexist. You know, um, Mexicans come to the United States to buy our products because they always think that the Mexican products are substandard in quality. So they'll come to the departments, you know, to the stores and they'll stock up on detergents and soaps and everything. And then at the end of the day, they go back to Mexico. You know, so my upbringing, my town was very it, it was its own Mexican, its its own Mexican style. Even when people say Tex-Mex, no, that it was completely different. It had its own thing where going to Mexico was an everyday thing. There were so many kids that would go to Mexico. Kids, teenagers would go to like Mexico and drink in Mexico and then come back, you know, and. Our whole community was predominantly Mexican. I, I was a theater nerd in high school, and I didn't know how different we were because every play we did was a Mexican production of every play. <laughs> so I always tell this story. Like my freshman year, my school did The Diary of Anne Frank, and we're all Mexicans. So we're doing um, – so there's like like all these Mexicans telling the story of the Holocaust – and we thought it was normal, you know, and it wasn't until I left again that I'm like, oh, that's actually kind of unusual. What's weird is that I remember in high school with theater, because we were all Mexican, we were never told that we couldn't do anything. We were accepted. We were allowed to do like Into the Woods. We could do like we could do all of these musicals, all these shows. And I remember an acting teacher of mine said, as a Latina, you can only do West Side Story chorus line. Rent was still on the edge of being kind of a hit. We weren't really sure. And that was devastating. We'll finish up my conversation with Cristela Alonso after a quick break. 
When we come back, she'll tell me about how her family managed to get by and stay close, even when the place they called home was an abandoned diner. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Lisa, the mattress with over 11,000 five-star reviews and a mission to end bedlessness in America. The Lisa mattress was designed to provide support and pressure relief to every body type and sleep style for a deeper night's sleep. Lisa plants a tree for every order and donates a mattress for every 10 sold. Get $125 off, free shipping, and 100 nights to try the Lisa mattress. Go to leesa.com slash NPR. Which pop culture icon is ripe for a comeback? What movies should I go see this weekend? What should I binge watch next? I like to Hulu and chill. Am I a monster? Yeah, what's a great French film about lady cannibals? For answers to these questions and so much more, come on over to Pop Rocket, a pop culture roundtable show with me, Guy Branham. Winter Mitchell. Margaret Wappler. And Karen Thompson. Catch us every Wednesday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you decide to get your podcasts. I'm not going to (laughs) judge. Would you put on a sweater that once belonged to Hitler? Can Chinese zodiac signs predict who's going to be a great scientist? And what happens when you use a training method for dogs to teach doctors? Answers to all those questions on my podcast, Hidden Brain. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Cristela Alonso, is a stand-up comic, an actor, and showrunner. She created the ABC sitcom Cristela. Her latest stand-up special, Lower Classy, is on Netflix now. You can also hear Cristela on the new Maximum Fun podcast, Bubble. She's one of the stars of the show. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. What do you feel like people assume about the world that you grew up in? I think that people, you know, it's a stereotype of, like, you know, it's the assumption that... Um, I mean, like, I feel like probably you're a stand-up comic. You've probably had 15 years of people coming up to you after a show and telling you what assumptions they oh, have, like, all the directly. Time. Well, you know, especially uh, before I had my TV show, I was really popular in the college circuit. And I was getting booked in Nebraska, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan. And, and uh, like, I'll tell you this story. There was, this, there was one show that I did where after the, after the show... All these students lined up to ask me for my autograph, and I couldn't believe it. I'm like, oh, my God. In my mind, I'm like, girl, you're killing it. Then I find out that a lot of these students have never met a Latino in their life and that their Spanish teacher had sent them to, to my show and for extra credit. <laughs> and they had to get an autograph from me to prove that they went to the show. So this autograph was basically saying, yep, I met a Latina. (laughs) (laughs) It was so mind-blowing because this wasn't in like 1894 or even 1953. I'm saying 2013. Was your mother documented? Yes, she was. She actually, she came on a visa. And this is actually why I like to talk about this. She came on a visa I don't have any family pictures from my mom that aren't passport photos because she tried her entire life since she was living in Mexico to become a citizen here. And it's so hard. People don't understand. Um, She wanted to become a resident alien. 
And in order to do that, you have to go back to Mexico and basically ask them for permission to become one. And she tried three times, and she got told no every time. And back then, every time was $5,000 to try, which in the 80s, a lot of money. My family, we were squatters in a diner, like the first seven years of my life. My mom was trying to become a resident alien while we were living in, while we were squatting in this diner. So my mom, her visa expired and she stayed in the United States trying to become a resident alien, trying to get that status. So while she was waiting for the process, she was undocumented. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to live in a border town in a situation where where you're a kid, you don't necessarily really understand exactly what the rules are about immigration and your mom and your family and I'm sure like your neighbors and friends. Mm -hmm. Um, But you live in this physical space where uh, the Border Patrol has a weird legal authority and a physical presence that, you know, isn't felt anywhere else. I mean, there's, there's roadblocks and things within 30, 40 miles of the border that don't exist anywhere else in the United States. Uh, uh, It's very good at instilling uh, instilling fear in people. And uh, I think that's one of the biggest uh, problems is that uh, we don't get enough information, enough facts. Did you feel scared? Uh, I did. Uh, And see, that's what people don't understand is that I was born in Texas. But because my mom spent so much time being undocumented trying to become a legal resident... I become what my mom is. If she's gone, I'm done. And people don't understand that. It's it's not like it's not, you know, when people use the term anchor baby, whatever it is, you know, it's like they make it seem like, oh, well, I'm like the golden child, you know, oh, everybody, you know, I'm just giving you freedom for everybody's free now. I'm here. No, actually, it's the opposite. Let's hear some more comedy from Cristela Alonso. Her new special is called Lower Classy. Um, she talks about the election a lot, as you would expect. Uh, it was sort of what was going on. And um, in this clip, she's she's talking about what uh, a lot of people are thinking about when they talk, when they were talking in the election about bringing back the good old days. You know what pissed me off when I started hearing people say, we need to go back to the good old days. We need to go back to the good old days. You ever notice it's only white people saying that Brown people, when was our good old days, right? If it was really the good old days, why don't you ever see black people doing Civil War reenactments, right? You never see that. Never see that conversation. Hey, Lamar, what are you doing this weekend? I'm going to go to my neighbor's house. I'm going to cook and clean for free. You know, like the good old days. I love that joke. <laughs> um, I I have a I have a good buddy who is a stand up comic mm-hmm. who is uh, half Mexican and half Italian, mm-hmm. and it you know in his career he is you know the characters that he plays tend to be Latino characters, and you know it's an, an important part of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. And when he goes and when he would get booked on uh, like a Latino theme show, mm-hmm. which this is like a popular thing in stand-up comedy where that always has a, a 
borderline offensive food name, <laughs> like spicy chili night or something <laughs> yeah, like yes, that. Yes, 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 yes. Um, he would really struggle with that mm-hmm. uh, because it was not his world. Mm-hmm. And I know that earlier in your career, you toured on like Latin comedy shows yeah. where you have to like – there's an expectation there. Absolutely. That you are going to deliver the Latino. I did not fit in at all. It was painful. When I moved to Los Angeles, I tried getting into the clubs, and there was one club in Los Angeles that uh, sent me away and told me that I had to go do the Mexican restaurants and I had to go do the Mexican bar shows and everything because I was Latina and I couldn't get a spot at that club. And I did because I had to go up. And I was banished to this circuit where so many times I would just eat it. It was painful, but I needed gas money or, you know, or like they would pay me in like food. And for a while, I found myself slowly trying to placate to those audiences. And I hated myself. And one day I woke up and I realized I'm not being genuine to me, to like my myself. I'm not being honest about what I want to talk about. And the moment I realized that I was doing that, I quit, which led me to being completely broke, which led to me not getting booked by anybody, which just led to me just completely devastated. I didn't go on the road for about a year and a half, and I used that time to rebuild and really kind of say, say like, this is going to be my set. And if nobody likes it, then then I can't do stand-up. Was there a time when you considered uh, falling into the cultural category of the white comedians that were around you, which is to say, like, leaving leaving all of your specific cultural experiences out and just sticking with your feelings about friends <laughs> or Starbucks or other things that... You know, I've, I, I have to be really honest. I uh, There was a part of me for a while that craved the ability to do that. I would watch specials and stuff, and I'm like, why can't I just write about coffee? (laughs) Why why can't I make coffee funny? But God, I really wanted to. I even... And I I tried sometimes. I would sit down in my notebook, because I don't use my laptop. I write in a notebook, and I'm like, what's it? What's a general joke? Like, can I write a joke about pie? (laughs) You know? And then after that, I'm like... Girl, you don't like pie. Why are you writing a joke about pie? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, so I I strayed away from it. But it's one of those things that I think it's one of the pitfalls that I think a lot of us do, especially in stand up, is that um, you see what's currently popular and you want to emulate it. I feel like one of your signatures on stage is your smile and laugh. <laughs> um, yeah. I love that I smiled and laughed as you said smiled and laughed. Well, I mean, it's something that you use. When you are happy and making a joke, mm-hmm. it's also something that you use when you are delivering a brutal truth yes. in an effort not to lose the audience <laughs> until you get to the punchline. Well, you know, actually, it comes from like uh, it comes from my mom. My mom grew up in a very uh, abusive household, and she she tried not to be that person, but she at sometimes could be pretty abusive. And as a kid, I always wanted to make her happy and I wanted to make her laugh so that she even because I saw the sadness in her face of living her life that as a kid, I wanted to make her laugh and I wanted to entertain her to kind of take her away from her reality. 
So when I'm on stage, it, I'm unaware that I'm doing it because I've been doing it my entire life. There was a picture that I saw of you as a kid. Mm-hmm. You're maybe 13 years old or something, mm-hmm. and you're giving whoever is holding the camera just full future musical theater nerd, <laughs> like full. You yeah. are shining in this picture, right? <laughs> My right, yeah. And your mother is standing next yes. to you, as stone faced as a human being, like the way that people yes. look in photographs of farmers from 1890 uh-huh. where they had to keep the same facial expression for 10 minutes <laughs> yes. so that it wouldn't blur. Like, yeah. just like, yes. she yes. looks like she just found out that her parents died or something. Yeah, yeah my, my friends and I, I my, my my friends who have immigrant parents, we always joke about how, like, uh, like we try to take pictures of our parents and when they're smiling because they don't smile in pictures that... We try to sneak it in, but they're so good at telling when the camera was there that they would just stop smiling and go into like that stone cold like thing, like 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 face, you know. It, it's I rem- I know that picture that you're talking about. It's like I'm smiling, and my mom's like, "Is this over? Can we move on with our lives?" <laughs> yeah, or like I have work to do. Exactly. It's like, why are we taking a picture? This is depressing. <laughs> like, why are we remembering when we're so poor? Like, why are we doing this? I felt like as I was watching your special, which you filmed, if I'm remembering correctly, in San Antonio, Mm -hmm. I heard laughter to your jokes of two kinds. Uh, One was the that's a funny joke laughter, Mm -hmm. your standard stand-up comedy laughter. One was like almost a wail of self-recognition, like the feeling like... I never imagined Mm -hmm. someone would speak to my experience like this. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of laughter. And it happens in a lot of places that I go to. And it that laughter is what motivates me to keep doing it because, again, I am very hard on myself. And I am very hard on myself. And... uh, when I hear that laughter, I feel like that's why I do it. You said that you grew up for the first eight years of your life squatting in a diner. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? There was an abandoned diner in San Juan, Texas. Uh, my mom um, my mom came from an abusive household, and then she married an abusive man, and she wanted to leave him. And I was, uh, she was pregnant with me. My dad wanted nothing to do with me. And uh, she ended up leaving him. She's a devout Catholic. I mean, she does not believe in divorce. She left him because she was scared for her life. Had nowhere to go. Had a second grade education. Found this abandoned building. Old abandoned diner. Boarded up. Off the main street in our little town. And we moved in there. And she would... There was a house next to the diner. And she became friends with the neighbor. And the neighbor let her use an extension cord so that we could have electricity in the diner. I tell this story a lot about how my mom, she used to have a space heater. And she would, this is back when they didn't have like safety features. So you could actually move the space heater face up. And she would cook on that space heater for us. I thought everybody lived like that. When did you realize that that was different? 
till I moved to Los Angeles, actually, because I never spoke about it. Like, it was that thing, like, we never really talk about specific details about how we grew up. Um, I was at a diner with some friends. And I started telling the story because the counter reminded me of the diner. And I started telling these stories about my childhood to these, I want to say, three friends. And they kind of gave me this weird face, like, what are you talking about? And then I started describing it more because now they're, like, investigating, like, what the hell is this? It, it wasn't until, like, that night that they told me, like, Christella, you lived in, you lived in a diner. I, I didn't even think about it. And I re- remember, like, they laughed at me because they thought I was lying, like, joking. And I called, I called my family. And I'm like, do we live in a diner? <laughs> <laughs> and everybody started, like, my brothers and my sister were like, yeah, stupid. Like, you didn't, I'm like, I didn't know. I was a kid. I was a kid. You know, I had no idea. And that's when I started realizing, like, I looked back at like a handful of pictures that we had and I started remembering stories. It's that like moment at the end of Fight Club when you flash back and he realizes he's Tyler. <laughs> like, you know, like it's that thing. I started flash back and I'm like, not everybody grew up that way. I was like, not everybody grew up that way? Like, no. Like my family had to tell me, Christella, we're really poor. I didn't realize it till that moment because my mom did such a good job of making me feel happy. Was there a point when you realized that that experience was also a kind of superpower? That it was the absolutely. Th- you know, it, I didn't realize it wasn't until I when I started getting uh, auditions to like uh, all the auditions I I would get when I first started auditioning were maids with thick accents, like thick accents that I've never heard anybody use ever in their life, and I'm from a border town, right and I finally turned them all down. And that's when I realized that my upbringing, like the the hardship and everything, made me fearless. I'm very picky. I say no all the time to things because I grew up poor. Being poor made me fearless because what's the worst that can happen? I go back to being poor, lived it, had a great time with it. You know what I mean? I I go back to being poor. That's what poverty made me realize, that nothing is worth it. If it doesn't feel right to you, it's not worth it. And again, it's like, I know, even if I became poor, again, I would never be that poor. Because I'm a capable adult that at the end of the day, I can go stock shelves of big lots if I have to. Like, I was a kid. I was actually living as a result of what my mom was capable of doing. And I know that because of her journey, I'm capable of a lot more. Christella Alonso from last year. Her stand-up special, Lower Classy, is available right now on Netflix. It's hilarious. She is a brilliant comic. You can also hear her on a show that I produced, our new scripted podcast, Bubble. One thing that I knew about Christella was that she is a huge sci-fi fan. She is so serious about Star Trek The Next Generation and Doctor Who in particular. And so we invited her to play an evil corporate executive in an alternate universe bubble city in our show Bubble. Uh, and she is so great in it. She's, she's so funny. Uh, Christella's great. We try to close Bullseye with a recommendation from me personally. It's the outshot. 
The next time somebody tells you how vital and exciting Saturday Night Live's political sketches are, just nod quietly. You don't need to get in a fight with them. You know, Saturday Night Live's got to do some topical stuff. But you know what the real good stuff is. You know about Wells for Boys. With Fisher-Price play sets, some kids can be four-star chefs. Some kids can win the race. But some just long to be understood. Introducing Wells for Sensitive Little Boys from Fisher-Price. Wells for Sensitive Boys to wish upon, confide in, and reflect by. Everyone's favorite SNL sketches were on TV when they were 13 years old. That's just a truism. When you're 13, just watching TV for an hour and a half that late at night seems like getting over. Everything about the show is magical when you're 13. But then 20 or 25 years later, you grow up and all of a sudden you're writing hot takes for Vulture or whatever with the headline Saturday Night Dead. But there are times... There are times when even to a grizzled 30-something like me, something on SNL breaks through. Something feels like it belongs in the pantheon, like right away. That is Wells for Boys. He'll enjoy running his little fingers around the edge of the well. On days when he's had too much, he'll lean on it and contemplate his reflection. Some kids like to play. Others just sort of wait for adulthood. So what is he putting in there? A secret. It's two minutes of magic for anyone who's ever felt dreamy. By the time it got to the balcony, I was nearly in tears. Sort of combination laughter, feelings, tears. Also, check out other cool new toys for our sensitive boy line, like balconies for when they're ready to announce something, or a shattered mirror to examine the complex contradictions of their being. It's a sausage factory. SNL. An hour and a half of live TV every week. Somebody's got to put on the Trump wig. Somebody says live from New York. That's all fine. It's good. But sometimes somebody sneaks in something really special. Something for us. That thing's weird. I don't get it. That's because it's not for you. Because you have everything. Everything is for you. And this one thing is for him. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Just recently here in the park, firefighters climbed up their fire truck ladders to spray a bunch of water into the lake. It was fine. Lakes are made of water, so they were just adding more water to it. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Our interstitial music was provided to us by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our theme song was recorded by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries Records for letting us use it. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, we have over 15 years' worth of interviews available. Just go to MaximumFun.org to listen. While you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We'll tip you off to interviews, share everything we're up to. You can also look up Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on YouTube to find all our interviews and segments there as well. And they're easy to share there if you've got a friend who's not podcast savvy. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.